Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I got back together to record a podcast episode for the first time in a while. If you were a regular listener to Future Out Loud, and thank you if you are, and welcome if you haven't been, uh, you might have noticed that it's been a few months since we recorded a podcast episode. We both had some other uh, big projects going on that have now uh, come to a resolution, both of them. And so we are back in the podcasting saddle, and you'll be hearing more from us uh, with the Future Out Loud podcast on a more regular basis uh, from here on out. So I uh, Today, we got back together to talk about an article that we saw in the New York Times, or as some of my friends just call it, the paper. Uh, This was on November 8th, 2018, and it was an interview with the CEO of Google. It was a, a corner office piece in the business section. And, you know, he said something interesting around the role of technology and humanities problems. And so we wanted to noodle on that for a bit, and that is what you will hear. Before we get to that, um, thank you for being here and listening to the Future Out Loud podcast. If you are not already subscribed to Future Out Loud, maybe somebody sent you a link to this episode, hey, go ahead and subscribe so that new episodes will just magically appear in your podcast feed. And you can find us on uh, the Apple Podcast Store, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud. You can find all of our episodes, including this one, on our website, futureoutloud.org. And, um, you know, if you're just hearing Future Out Loud for the first time, or if you've been a longtime subscriber and you think, oh, hey, my buddy would really like to hear about one of these episodes, go ahead and tell them and let them know that they can subscribe as well. So without further ado, back to Andrew and Heather talking about technology and humanities problems. And thank you for listening. Hey, Andrew. Hi, Heather. It's just the two of us here. And um, we wanted to talk about... so. First of all, congratulations on your book. Thank you. Which keeps this a little bit from being evergreen, but you just published a book. I just published a book, yes. And it's called... It's called Films from the Future, the Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies. Exactly. So, and it's available on Amazon, of course. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere where books are sold. Exactly. And you can Google everywhere where books are sold to find a place where books are sold. You could, or you could just Google films from the future and you'll get to the same place. Exactly. Which brings us to the conversation we wanted to have today, which came out of a recent piece in the New York Times, or as my friends from the tri-state area simply refer to as the paper, because there is no other paper. paper. Um, And this was an interview... Uh, with Sundar Pichai, 
which I've probably completely butchered, and I for that I apologize, uh, but he's the CEO of Google. And there was this interview with him that we both uh, took a peek at, and the the biggest thing about it is, you know, he talked about he grew up in Chennai in the, in the midst of a drought, and he uh, always wanted to be in Silicon Valley, and so he went to grad school at Stanford, and he ended up in Silicon Valley, and now he's the CEO of Google, and he was really drawn to this idea of technology solving humanity's problems, and in this interview... He, uh, you know, he was asked, do you still feel like Silicon Valley has that idealism? And he said, um, you know, we're, we deliberate about things a lot more and we are more thoughtful about what we do. But there's a deeper thing here, which is technology doesn't solve humanity's problems. It was always naive to think so. And he goes on to say technology is an enabler. But uh, humanity has to deal with humanity's problems. And he said, I think we're both over-reliant on technology as a way to solve things and probably at this moment over-indexing on technology as a source of all problems too. And so that's something that you and I have been saying. For a while. For a while. Yes. And I'm delighted that he, you know, says this as well from his perspective as the CEO of Google. But I don't think we can just leave it there. Sure. Well, it, it raises enormous questions of what do we do next? I mean, and so, yes, it's great that he, he recognizes the, the important role of society and, and people in the, this dynamic. Um, but where do we go with this uh, knowledge and how does that propagate to other companies? Because the, the reality is that Google is just part of a much larger ecosystem of, of tech companies, all the way from the startups and the entrepreneurial ventures, all the way through to the, the mega organizations like Google and others. Right. Um, so how do we how do we change things? I, I, and so this is part of what we've been doing for, for many years now. Mm-hmm. How do you get people that are developing these technologies to understand how to do it in a socially responsible way, understanding that there's that connection with society, and to do good, you need more than just a great tech. You've actually got to understand how people work and how to find out that niche where you can genuinely add value and improve lives. Yeah, I mean, I I think it does get to understanding how people work, but also, and I guess maybe now we can bring in one of the other mega companies. I was uh, mentioning to you just before we turned on the recorders that I was listening to one of my other favorite podcasts, uh, The Weeds mm-hmm. from Vox, um, because I certainly want to attribute ideas where ideas originated, or at least where I heard them. And uh, in a recent podcast, they were talking about the difference between Google, Mm -hmm. uh, and we've just been talking about, you know, Google and Sundar Pichai, uh, and Facebook. Right. And Facebook, of course, is one of the other mega, you know, technology, uh, information technology firms. Mm -hmm. And on the weeds, they were talking about, you know, Google has really fundamentally changed humanity with some very obvious benefits. It's not all perfect, right, but it's right. very obvious benefits. And the ability to, as we were talking about your book, to Google where to find it. Right, right. You know, people can do a Google search, and it has really, in many ways, democratized knowledge right, and right. information for 
much of humanity, excluding China, where it's illegal. Um, but and, and your argument was that that what is Facebook? brought to the table. That's exactly yes. right. Yes. And this yes. is what they yeah. what the folks on the weeds were talking yeah. about. Um, yeah. yeah, what has Facebook so, brought So I would I would actually push back a little bit, but I think that the premise of that is right. If you look at Google, there's a there's a narrative history there where the company or the founders wanted to do good and they built a company to do it. Mm-hmm. Facebook, they just wanted to do something cool mm-hmm. and then they tried to retrofit the good onto it. Yeah. Um, to a certain extent, and I think it's more complex than that, but you seem to have there those two different extremes. Mm-hmm. Um, where I think that there are dangers is I actually think that they're converging. So Google has discovered that it's difficult just to do good in mm-hmm. the messy world of economics and policy and politics and people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no straight line to, to doing good. You right. have to compromise at some point. Whereas Facebook have, have discovered that once they've got this platform, they could think about doing good, but they're running into the same problems, that it's messy. Um, well, and, and I would even argue that, that with Facebook, I don't think you can say that they really haven't done any good, because if they haven't done any good, why are so many people investing so much time? Are they being conned? Or is there a subtle form of value there that is not easy to recognize? So I have two things to say in response. One is that I, when I think about uh, does Facebook do any good, I think specifically about the night that there was the shooting at the nightclub in Paris, mm-hmm. and one of my uh, one of my friends who was living in that arrondissement. And that she checked in on Facebook as being safe. Right. And to me, that felt like a good right. that Facebook right. was okay. offering. Yes. So, yes. yeah. Um, but, but I think there are subtler things as well. I mean, so and I, I think it's very easy to bring our own value set to what is good and what is bad course. and impose it on, onto others. And I suspect there are people out there that will say, the way that I use Facebook, it may be subtle, but it brings something to my life where I would fill my life with less than it is without it these days. Uh, yes, and there's quite a lot of decent, to my understanding, science uh, indicating that you know Facebook is designed to operate in... Uh, uh, to appeal to addiction behaviors, right, right? Right. And that when people reduce their time on Facebook, and you can say all social media, mm-hmm. even when Facebook has been studied specifically, that other markers of psychological well being are better. Right. Okay. So. That people say, you know, I ha- get a personal good from right, being right. on Facebook is a little bit tough. But I think that the idea, though, of the messiness that you talked about is, uh, and when you do good, uh, you know, it's messy to do good because it's not so good. Uh, there's there's evil that has to go along with the good. I would push back on that just a little bit by saying it's not necessarily that it's evil, but people are complex and there are... There are many things in the world that two different people will view the exact same thing as being good or right. evil. Right. And it brings to mind for me, I was uh, attended the funeral of a mother of a good friend, and uh, the deceased, 
she had two big things in her life that she devoted her adult life to. Mm-hmm. One was getting kids vaccinated, mm-hmm. and the other was the National Rifle Association. Okay, yep. And she was, you know, very active in the Republican Party here in mm-hmm. Arizona, and um, when she died, the night she died, my friend got three phone calls. One was from Senator John McCain, who, as you know, I am holding my heart as right. a hero forever and ever. Uh, second, from Governor Doug Ducey. Mm-hmm. And third, from the NRA President Wayne Lampier. Okay. And so this woman embodied... Right, two right. goods for her that to me are a good and, and a bad. evil. Right. Yes. yes. And I just yes. want to be clear, I'm yes. not saying the Republican Party is evil, I'm saying that the current instantiation of the NRA I find to be evil. Right, right. Just to be right. clear. But it but it does illustrate how complex things get when you look at somebody's individual mm-hmm. mindset and, and worldview compared to, to other people's. Yeah. And I think that that is is relevant to Facebook. So I mean, I would agree with you when you look at the the potential damage versus the good that an organization or a platform like Facebook does. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm also well aware that that it's more complex than that. Absolutely. Um, because we're living in a society where pretty much because we're market-driven, everything that is done is designed to appeal to some aspect of our, our psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, our weaknesses, our biases, our psychology are all used by every single company, whether they think they're doing good or whether they think they're just making money. Right, right. So then going back to his original, uh, to Pichai's original mm. statement, you know, that techno- what was it? technology is not going to... Uh, uh, technology doesn't solve humanity's problems. Yep. It's an enabler, but humanity has to deal with humanity's problems. Yep. And so we... It's interesting for me to think about the leader of the biggest of these companies. Right, right. So, yeah, I, yeah and I. so it gets us back to the question of where do you go from there? Mm-hmm. Um, and so my first response is, Absolutely wonderful, um, because I think this is a, um, an enlightened perspective that if there was follow-through there, it could transform how we use technology Absolutely. in society. The huge question, and I'm going to focus specifically on Google, is how the company does this. Mm-hmm. Um, because still at the moment, as a company, if you look at all of the, the really interesting and sometimes quite wonderful things they're doing, they're still technology-driven. They're still driven by the assumption that you put great minds when it comes to science and technology or engineering into a room, they can come up with solutions which will fix problems. And even though there's this top-down perspective from the the leadership saying, actually, maybe things aren't like that, there aren't the mechanisms to bring different perspectives in there. So what I would love to see is, how does that transform into something where you still have those great technological minds, Mm -hmm. but they start talking to other people that have different perspectives so that they can end up actually making better products better technologies that actually serve society rather than entrap society. No, I think that's right. And uh, being able to hold front and center that 
technology is just a tool. That's right, it's yes. It's not the thing. And technology is not inherently good or evil. It's always, at the end of the day, it's always people. Right, right. And, well, and I would say and it's that relationship between people and technology. It's, it's how we use it, how we respond to it, how the technology changes us, and how we, in turn, change the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality is, and actually, interestingly, because I've got to bring it back to the book just a, a little bit. I, I, actually, so this is at the heart of the book, Films from the Future. It's trying to understand that really complex relationship between us and our technology, because if you can understand that, you can actually build technologies which serve society far more effectively. Sure. So uh, this is responsible innovation. It, uh, and that's exactly where it's going, asking that question, what does it mean to be responsible? And, and even more importantly than that, if you're in the business of developing technologies, mm-hmm. working out what choices you can make from the very get-go when you first come up with the seed of an idea which is going to lead you along a pathway of a product which is commercially successful but also serves society better mm-hmm. rather than suddenly discovering two years down the line that you made a stupid mistake early on and you're locked in, you can't get out of it. Right. Should there be some kind of code of ethics or morality for people who are engaged in technology? I, I, would, I would just say practical training. Actually, I wouldn't even go along the ethics route, not because the ethics is wrong, but it's because we've got preconceived ideas of what ethics are, and usually okay. those preconceived ideas are certainly in the tech world, not in other worlds, mm-hmm. but in the tech world, something that you just sort of bolt on and something that people don't pay much attention to. Mm-hmm. But if we had basic training, all the way from how we train entrepreneurs and engineers and others, to how you begin to think about what you're doing before you do it. And even spending 10 minutes thinking about the consequences of a certain set of actions so you can reflexively think, well, what happens if I do things differently now? Even that will make a difference. But does that presuppose uh, that uh, that thought process would yield a common good response? Because I think that... You know, back to my friend's mom with right. childhood vaccines and the NRA. Um, and of course, it, it wouldn't. So, I mean, um, but it presupposes there is a single common good response, which I don't believe I don't there, is. there is. So, so in my mind, it moves the needle. Mm-hmm. It doesn't lead to a perfect future but it can lead to a better future because you've got more people thinking about how they can make early decisions that lead to better later outcomes than you do at the moment. And once you've started along that pathway, you've got the the opportunity to to shift it even further or nudge it even further. But that certainly doesn't stop people from going through that exercise and prioritizing making money or commoditizing humans. No, it doesn't. Right? No, it doesn't. Um, and, And I think you've got to be pragmatic and accept that if you try and engineer the process too much it will break i mean it's if you look at the process of innovation within a complex society there are so many things influencing it that if you naively try to control one aspect of that too much everything begins to sort of balloon out elsewhere Mm -hmm. so i think Mm -hmm. the best we can do is actually have fairly subtle approaches where we begin to nudge things towards directions which are more socially responsible Mm -hmm. without trying to fix the whole thing and the danger of trying to fix the whole thing is both you break it and secondly that you bring one particular ideology to the system which isn't shared universally and that leads to social discord and utterly um, ultimately things falling apart so is this uh then the active practice of uh 
the arc of humanity bending and not turning a 90 degree corner? It might be. Uh, I, so, so that's the philosophy I would um, probably adhere to um, because I'm always suspicious about people saying that the society as a whole has got to take a, a, a very drastic sort of change mm-hmm. in direction. Right. Um, simply because, again, you're imposing one particular worldview on everybody, and it, it doesn't work. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, uh, I've spent a lot of time talking to people from all walks of life in the last couple of years right. uh, away from the university. And, um, yeah, everybody yeah. does not walk the same path. It, yeah. So, so one thing I would add, though, um, and... This comes from my experience of, of teaching um, graduate students in entrepreneurship. So I, mm-hmm. I used to teach a course in entrepreneurial ethics for a number of years. And mm-hmm. it wasn't really about ethics. It was about how to succeed and be responsible. Okay. Um, how but, does it, what does it mean to succeed, though? Okay. Well, so that's actually part of it. How do you mm-hmm. define success? So if you're in business, you, you start with fiduciary responsibility. You've got to make money. If you're not making money, not only are you not doing what you're supposed to do, you're actually breaking the law because you're breaking that sure. contract you have with, with your funders. So you've got to have that front mm-hmm. and center. But then you've got to work out what on top of that means success. Yeah. So at the beginning of the, the course I, I used to teach, um, we used to go around the, the class. And these were all engineering students mm-hmm. and ask, what is really important to you? What are you ultimately trying to achieve mm-hmm. with the venture you're trying to set out? Um, and each year, there would probably be one person that would say rather tritely, I want to make money, but mm-hmm. they, they just did it to be provocative. In every other situation, nobody was in it to make money. They were in it to change lives. They were in it to address environmental issues, to um, treat disease, to improve quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you'll find as you go out to the entrepreneurial community, it's the same. Mm-hmm. Most people that become entrepreneurs or established startups do it because they want to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And that's a really encouraging starting point, that, that most people actually want to do good. The trouble is, it's very clear when you look at the process that if you don't have a framework for doing good, if you just have good intentions, those good intentions get burnt up within sure. the first few weeks. As soon as the first hard hurdle comes, mm-hmm. if you haven't got a mentality, a mindset, a set of tools for doing good, you won't succeed. Okay. Um, and so, and But this makes me very encouraged here because it means that in principle, we can equip entrepreneurs with a set of tools which will help them do better than they do at the moment without getting mired down by the realization that good intentions are not enough. So is this a role for market economics of good? In, it, in part. I, I think it's got multiple dimensions and, and multiple layers. I mean, ultimately, if you're going to be a company that succeeds and does good, whatever good means, mm-hmm. Um, you've got to understand the economics of that. You've got mm-hmm. to understand how the market works, um, how investments work within that market. But taking a step back from that, you've got to have a set of structures, um, a set of um, operationalized values that help guide decision making. Mm-hmm. So even before you get to the to market forces, mm-hmm. every time you're faced with a hurdle, do you take an investment from one VC or another? Mm-hmm. Do you take a bribe because everybody else does? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you accept um, labor practices which really aren't quite above board, but they actually give you a competitive edge? Do you do business in countries that um, rely on child labor? Mm-hmm. All of these are things that that we find that if you don't have processes in place for dealing with them, you suddenly discover you've made decisions 
that are morally reprehensible. But as okay. soon as you've got a structure in place, it helps you. It takes away the, the, the angst of making difficult decisions like that. Right. Now, and I think that when we look at... Uh, Oh, when we look at companies that are transparent about making those kinds of decisions, often we see those corporations doing very well. Right. When we look at corporations that aren't transparent about making those types of decisions, it there's a much greater the, range the, the, of is. doing well or not well. And, and, and so, yeah. but here's the challenging thing here. You can be... I'm going to use the term evil, but but you can be an evil company sure. and you can su- you can succeed. You can yes, make an awful course. lot of money as of an evil company, yeah. and you can be a good, well-meaning company and you can fail. Absolutely. So so and, and you've got to realize that, that that's reality. We but, see that in every marketplace, whether the commodity is you know dollars or votes, right, or right, whatever. Right. On the other hand, I think there's growing evidence that. If you're a company that's cutting corners and doing things which really aren't that socially responsible, mm-hmm. but it's giving you a, um, a, a step ahead in the short term, yes. it makes you increasingly vulnerable in the long term. Yeah, that's right. And so what we're discovering is a lack of transparency. It may actually make you allow you to succeed over a two or three year period. Mm-hmm. But as people in society decide they actually don't like those behaviors, they right. don't like what you stand for, they don't like what you're doing, you begin to find increasingly high social barriers to what you're trying to achieve. So if your aim is to be in business for 10, 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. it's actually really bad business not being responsible from the outset. So winning at checkers does not set you up for victory at chess. Good way of putting it, yes. All right. Well, thank you. And I'm glad we've sorted this out. And, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, and I'm looking forward to, I think our next uh, episode actually is going to be focused on your book. Yes. Once again, Films, Films from, from the, the future. future, the technology and morality of sci-fi movies. All right. So I look forward to that. Thanks, Heather. Okay, thanks, Andrew. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.